Begin Podfix Network transmission. In three, two, one. Whether you're fly fishing in a stream, getting those ankles wet, or deep in the ocean casting nets, fish nerds, fish nerds, fish nerds, it's a podcast. Hello and welcome to the Fish Nerds, a show about fish, fishing, and eating fish. Show that's always interesting, usually funny, and mostly true. I'm Clay Groves, Chief Executive Fish Nerd, Licensed Fishing Guide, your best friend. Big show tonight. Tim Beat and the Crappie Hippie are here. They're here with their segment called Lure Love. It's growing in popularity. If you don't know it already, you're going to love it. We're excited about this. They're going to talk a little bit about Z-Man lures and then WD-40. What does WD-40 have to do with fishing lures? They're going to tell you all about it. And then Rich Collins is here with Jeff from Brackish Flies, and they're going to talk all things brook trout. So let's not waste time. Let's jump right in to Lure Love and get this going on. Lure Love, I can't get enough. Got a space in my tackle box, just got to fill it up. can't ever stop don't got a basement got an underground tackle shop good evening everybody this is crappie hippie your tree hugging redneck from eastern kansas and thank you for tuning in to lure love and with me tonight is outdoor writer fish nerds own essayist tim beat how you doing tonight tim i am great john how are you I'm doing great. I'm doing great. And I've been doing better. Hey, you got us into this Z-Man challenge thing, brother. And I got all my baits and I got my stuff and uh, I ran right out and gave them a try. Have you gotten a chance to get out and try? I, I did. And I can tell you, I am super excited about this challenge. So for all of this year, when I fish soft baits, I'm only going to fish these Z-Man Elastec baits. And the reason is they're biodegradable. I'm not a, I love fishing plastics, but I'm not a big fan of losing plastics. And so I actually caught my first fish of the year um, using the Elastec and uh, actually caught a bass through the ice, John, but from shore, I took a big rock, I threw it into the middle of the pond. So it punched a hole in it and I cast a jig on a float, reeled it over the ice till the jig fell in and yanked a bass out of that hole with one of the Z-Men. So I thought that was a good way to start the year. That is so brilliant. That is so <laughs> 10 year old and Vanny brilliant. It reminds me of something I'd read in one of your essays, as a matter of fact. Uh, yeah, that's fantastic, man. That's fantastic. Well, mine, mine's a little more uh, uh, conventional. I, I just grabbed one of the, the um, Ned heads and, and put, they had one uh, called Trick Shot. And it's kind of between a fluke and a, and a short plastic worm. And uh, I just love the look of it. But the, the main thing is it's called Meat Dog. Uh, it's got purple and gray. I don't know. You know, I kept picturing this purple dog I, the whole time I was fishing. But anyway, I went down, just did your standard uh, Ned thing where I just would let it set and wiggle it a little bit and let it set till my patience wore out. Then I move it, move it. But uh, caught me a nice, just a nice chunk pound bass. But when I look at the picture, the mouth on that bass is so small and the fish was so fat. And I realized that. Um, all the advice that the pond lady's been giving me is starting to pay off in terms of uh, pond improvement and so forth. And then I nailed a crappie that wasn't more than probably 11, 12 inches long, but 
Lord have mercy, that thing was so thick through the back. So I know all this brush I've been putting in and all this different things I've been doing to enhance the habitat. You know, she's she's always in favor of those long term fixes rather than than just throwing out food or throwing doing this, you know, during the quickies. When you have that right habitat, then the environment's going to take care of itself. You're going to have the, the you know the the small minnows, the the structure for them to hide, for the structure for the bass to ambush and everything like that. So yeah, it makes a big difference. I'm in the process of doing that for my pond too. But but to tie it back to Z-Man, uh, I love these. These are weedless Ned heads. Um, I was fishing in some locust brush. I sent you some pictures of it and, yeah. uh, yeah, it's serious. It's serious brush, but I came through it without a problem and the bait caught the two fish and the bait was able to navigate the no locust needles. So we get these nice biodegradable baits, get a nice plastic bait that supposedly can last one to 200 fish. And that's my thing. I'm going to be, I'm going to be taking fish count and how they compare with what I used to use, uh, how they compare with what glass water sells. I got a story for you. You want to hear what Kathy laid on me too? Yeah. Tell me. Uh, she was really thought all the baits were cool. And then she saw the, the heads and she goes, are these lead? You know, so she goes to me in this giggly girl. Oh, look at this purple one. It was a funny name. You know, what's TRD mean and all this stuff. And, uh, and she's like, are these jig heads lead? And I was like, yeah. And she goes, you're the co-founder of Glasswater Angling, you know, lead free lures for better outdoors. She goes, you, you can't fish with these. Like, okay. <laughs> I go, well, what am I supposed to do? Because I can't get the hooks. I can't make the heads. You know, you are going to make lead-free heads out of these. And mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, so now I, I get to I get to cat I get to make a mold and melt the lead off, preserve the hook, and then put it in my mold and then recast it. Well, that that's good, John, because one of the things I love the Z-Man Ned heads because of the the welded keeper hook that they have, which Heck is yeah. re- really exceptional. And, you know, they've already done this with the last tech in looking at the environment. And who knows, maybe by talking about this, they'll uh, they'll move and do some research and, and create their own lead head because they obviously have a good jig there um, already. So maybe you can do some research for them. You know, just like that keeper you're talking about, that is a, a keeper like no other. It, it makes it almost impossible for that bait to back off the hook. Yet when you go the other way, it doesn't just rip it to, you know, rip it to heck. This is definitely low profile aluminum wheel, baby. This is a really good keeper. All right. All right, man. Hey, you know, we've been talking a lot about this, this new baits and, and a new tech, but um, you got a story, a great story. I saw on the fish, fish nerds Facebook group. And if you're not in the group, get in the group, folks. It's real easy. Uh, we're have a good time over there. Anyhow, you came across some vintage fishing lures and um, wow. It's it just awesome. Tell us all about it. Great story. Great batch of lures. What's going on, bro? Yeah, I got one of the best presents I have ever received in my life. So I grew up fishing with my uncle Larry, and we fished mostly for bass using typical equipment, you know, uh, spinning equipment, bait casting gear. Uh, but as Larry got older, he began to fly fish almost exclusively. So recently he asked me if I would like some of his old bass lures that he had in his basement. And obviously I said, send them. I, you know, I definitely want to see these, but I had no idea what amazing things I would find in the box he sent to me. This was like a treasure chest. Uh, some of the lures were more than 40 years old. I I had some matching ones because sometimes we would buy the same lures and um, I had a few, but there was well over a hundred lures in the uh, the box. And what's funny about this is Larry, when I was growing up, he would fly fish and, and spin fish, bait casting. He kind of did everything. But um, one Christmas we, we had a, uh, 
Christmas party where we all pick names out of a hat who you buy the present for. And I got Larry and I got him a graphite fly rod that he still has to this day. So I, I think it's a good strategy. You you want somebody to buy a lot of these lures, get them into fly fishing. So they'll 40 years later, they'll give you all their lures back. It's a v- very good investment. <laughs> <laughs> but John, let me tell you what was in the, in the box, just some of them. And some of these were new still in boxes. So there were some uh, Rapala fat wraps still in their boxes. There was um, an Uncle Buck's buzzer, which is an inline topwater still in the package. There were some Strike King and Mets uh, bass killer spinner baits in their packages. Then there were things like old jitterbugs from uh, Fred um, Arbogast, who was right here in Ohio. That's where they were made. There was an old one of those Creek Chub wooden jointed um, pikey lures with a metal lip, some Zara spooks. Um, Hula poppers, you name it. And so I am having a ball going through these because there's so many of them. But one of the things that I I began to think about was, well, when you get these old lures or even just lures in general, how do you clean them? Because some people are collectors. I'm going to fish these. I love fishing these old things, but I need to to make sure that they were in good shape, looking at the hooks, making sure you got some dirt, because some of these had been in Larry's basement for 20 years. So they were pretty covered with um, kind of with gunk and filth. And and you get the different categories. I mean, you're exactly right. Uh, First of all, you're going to go fish with an old lure, you know, look at the hooks. I mean, uh, it's great to find an old spinnerbait along the edge of the lake. But then if you look in the hooks, you know, get your eyeglass kit out and undo those little screws and take those mounts off and clean them up, get a new treble on there. Uh, but I know one of the tricky things you did was get that oxidation off there. The only way, and everybody knows it's that, that powdery white looking kind of stuff. And you can get it with a pencil eraser and you can get it with, even with your thumb, if you just sit there and rub it long enough, but unless you take the time to take all the hooks off and, and really bear down on it with rag, I mean, even soap and water has a, has a real challenging time. But, uh, I heard that you came up with a secret method on that stuff. I did. And you're right, John, there's a couple of things you got to clean. You got to clean the lure body, but you got the hooks, the split ring, the oxidation. And so I did a little bit of research and I tested some different things. And what I found is a product that's in 80% of our listeners' homes already, that you have this in in your closet someplace. And I think it's the best way to clean lures. And I'm going to give you a little bit of history about it, but the product is WD-40. WD-40. The, the multi-use, it's their standard version. Now, most people think WD-40 is a lubricant it, you know, for squeaks and stuff. And it is in part, but um, WD-40 literally stands for Water Displacement 40th Formula. So that's the name that came straight out of the lab book that the chemists used in 1953, the, a guy named Norm Larson. He was attempting to develop a formula to prevent corrosion. And how do you prevent corrosion? By displacing water getting water off of something. And so um, his persistence paid off and it was his 40th try. Now the company was called Rocket Chemical Company. They were putting together rust prevention solvents and degreasers for use in the aerospace industry. This is one of their first products and it was to protect the outer skin of the Atlas missile. Whoa. Isn't that cool? And the product worked so well that some of the employees were sneaking cans out of the plant to to use at home. So- WD-40 has anti-corrosion agents, it it penetrates, it displaces water, and it removes soil. So it's designed to get under dirt, grime, and grease. It's also designed to loosen rust-to-metal bonds. So you've got your rusty hooks on there that are something that's frozen. 
And it, then it also protects metal services from future corrosion. So it's perfect for, uh, for cleaning lures. And better than that, it's safe on most plastics, rubbers, and vinyls. But that's the part that would have scared me. Right. I, I knew it was a solvent. So I'm like, I ain't spraying this on no, you know, 60-year-old, yeah. 50-year-old lure. But it works on most of them as well as the metals. And uh, the, the cans have not contained CFCs for more than 30 years. So the cans even nice. in, environmentally um, friendly. So it really works well. But what's interesting is when you go to their website, and I did some research, you look at what else they use it for. And it's things that people don't think about. So spraying it on your snow shovel to keep snow from sticking in to protect it from salt cleaning stainless steel sinks it's a great cleaner for stainless steel wow so you don't have to worry when you clean out your lures and, and you rinse them in the sink this isn't a bad solvent that's going out it, it's uh it's designed for that or cleaning tar and bugs from your car the funny thing is people use it for so many different uh uses that wd-40 on their website lists has a document 2000 uses sent in by users and listen to some of these john all right. It it keeps snake and reptile skins pliable in taxidermy. <laughs> okay. Re- removes residue left by double-backed toupee tape. <laughs> 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 Protects and maintains armor suits. Removes barnacles from the bottom of boats. Keeps tackle from freezing during ice fishing. I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. Keeps lures from snagging on lily pads and lake grass. And refurbishes antique lures. So it actually says on the website, that's one of the the uses. There's a lot of myths about WD-40. One of them is that you find online is some people think that it contains fish oil. And the reason is, if you go to YouTube, a lot of people say that WD-40 is a fish attractant and they use it as a a fish attractant, which I do not recommend it um, for. It may work that way, but you don't want to be spraying the stuff in your, your pond, your river, your lake. But the WD-40 actually says that consumers have told them over the years that they've caught some of the biggest fish after protecting their, their fish hooks and lures with it. But here's my thought. With a lot of solvents, John, as you know, it might clean the lure, but it might have a smell and a residue that, that repulses the fish. So right. in this case, you at least don't have to worry about that. You don't want to use it as an attractant, but it's not going to be a repellent for fish. That's great. No, that is a huge concern. There's so much anecdotal and some science about fish smelling stuff and being either attracted or repelled. It, there's, there's a lot there. Uh, I would be concerned. Two of the uses that I think are have some fishing applications. These are true stories that people sent in that were particularly funny. One was there was a bus driver in Asia who had a python that had coiled itself around the undercarriage of the bus. And he sprayed it with WD-40 and it slipped off. <laughs> Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. (laughs) So my thought is if you're ever deep sea fishing and a giant octopus attacks you, you just got to spray it with that WD-40. You got to be, got to be in everybody's kit. One of of the other stories where there's some police officers who had responded to a, a burglar breaking into a building and the burglar was trapped in the air conditioning duct. By the way, he was naked. So they sprayed WD-40 to, to pull them out. So my thought is, if you're ever fishing too much in the morning and you're late for work and yeah. you got to sneak into your office through the ducks, bring your <laughs> WD-40 with you. <laughs> you're just pushing your clothes ahead. You know. Oh, man. Well, that is fascinating, Tim. That is absolutely yeah. cool. So let me tell you the pro- – let me walk you through the process. It's just, yeah, just pretty it, quick. But what I did is I got an empty two-liter 
plastic soda bottle and I cut off the bottom. And the reason is those two liter bottles have five small indentations in the bottom, which are perfect to kind of dangle the hooks in as they oh, soak. And so then okay. you can use less WD-40. You don't have to spray it in. And so you're immersing the entire lure. So I would put the, right. the lure into the bottom. I'd spray both sides and then make sure the indentations had enough WD-40 to cover the hooks and the split rings. And I, I let them sit for an hour or two, depending on how dirty they were. Okay. But as you said before, John, you can remove the, the hooks and split rings if you want them to soak separately. And that can be a good idea. You definitely need a pair of a decent pair of split ring pliers to get those hooks yeah. up, especially when they're yes. they're rusty. Um, now, for bigger split rings, I don't have a problem. But do you have any tips? I use a lot of small split rings, and sometimes even the small split ring pliers are tough to get in there and and get hooks on and off. Any tips on that? Uh, well, the only tip I would have is I use split rings down to double aught, which are about as small as you can get. And I use uh, what are called Zuron, X-U-R-O-N, Zuron split ring pliers. I've got uh, baby blue handles and they're a little more. Um, I've seen them as cheap as 10. I've seen them as much as 20. Um, when you're looking for the top quality wrench, the top quality tool for this, try Zuron pliers because the jaws are fine, but they're made out of a real good metal that, uh, well, I've put together close to 5,000 baits and that's 10,000 split rings. And that's, that's a testimonial for Zuron right there. Yeah. I figured you would know, well, that's good. I'm going to pick up a pair of those because I have a cheaper pair and on the small split rings, it doesn't work as well. Right. So, so then after it's been soaking a while, I use, got an, uh, a soft toothbrush not a hard bristle one because you don't want to, you know, damage these or, or rip the paint off of them. And so <laughs> I, you know, personally, I use an electric toothbrush. So whenever I go to the dentist, I always ask for, Hey, give me a couple more of those samples so I can brush my teeth. And then I use them for projects like this. <laughs> all right. <laughs> then after, you know, after it's all um, done, you rinse the lure body and the hooks. I just rinse them under the faucet because I'm cleaning the sink at the same time. <laughs> and then after the hooks are dry, I take a, I really kind of examine them. They often need to be sharpened. So, you you know, you can buy a, sh a hook sharpener for 10 bucks. That's a critical piece of it, even if they look good. If they don't look good, then I just, I bought some extra split rings and and uh, single um, inline hooks or some treble hooks and put those on. And in many cases, you're as good as new. It sounds, yeah, it sounds like all the steps I'd take. You know, it's no point in going through all this time of, and tackle and preparation and having their, you know, killer rod and reel and then the lure you're throwing has dull hooks or a hook that's going to break or a ring that's going to break or come open or whatever so yeah make sure you get an eye to those details so uh, your vintage lure goes out and uh, performs just like something that was made yesterday yeah and, and some of these just look amazing oh my goodness yeah that looks so, like so, uh, that looks like dawn of the dead the lure yeah. <laughs> so this is an old black um jitterbug this is the, that's the top. You can see it's so oxidized, the bottom of it, you can hardly even tell that it's black. And this is what, just the WD-40 and the toothbrush, that's the top of it. You can see all the lettering. Oh, it's beautiful. And there's the bottom of it. Yeah, no. Perfect it, it, condition. It, it's great condition. It's just unbelievable because the one thing really did look like it had been taken out of the crypt from, you know, 2000 years ago. And now it looks just great. Just looks like 1965 all over again. 
I see no reason if you have an allure that maybe it's only a few years old, but you've been doing some hard fishing with it and it's dirty. This is a quick way um, to do it, especially when you start to get some of that surface rust. The WD-40 will take that surface rust right off. Man, that is fantastic and uh, incredible. Um, all righty. Well, listen, thank you so much for all those tips. That was just awesome. I mean, I got so buzzed looking at that stuff and it, you know, wasn't even mine. And, uh, then when you started putting up how you were bringing, um, you know, a lot of it looked good and was in great shape, but yeah, there were some real, real zombies in there. Um, and now they look good as ever. So thanks for, uh, cluing us in and talking us through on how to make sure those vintage lures are brought back to fish catching perfection. Let's go to the Lurematic computer for a second and see what she has to say about WD-40. Let's do it. Greetings, flesh-bound fisher dudes. I have been listening to your discussion of WD-40. You got so excited about it that you sounded a bit like a late-night infomercial. With that in mind, I have produced a WD-40 advertisement especially for the Fish Nerds podcast. Here it goes. Are you afraid to show strangers your musky minnow because it's so muddy? Do you hide your flying helper mite when your in-laws visit because it's stained? Are you embarrassed that your hinkle lizard has lost its luster? Is your supersonic shiner soiled? Hi, I'm the Luramatic Computer and I'm here to tell you about WD-40, the miracle cleaner that will have your creek chub plunker plunking and your mud puppy barking in no time. WD-40, the high-tech cleaning agent used by astronauts, is your road to a cleaner happier tackle box. Imagine your adoring cheering fans as you win the fishing tournament, and take home a new boat. Hey, that could be me. No regular cleaner can do that. And imagine all your fishing dreams coming true. Wow, someone sent me 10 free fishing rods in the mail. And what about those pesky fish and game wardens? I was going to cite you for fishing without a license but your lures are so clean, I'm going to let you off and also give you $50. Just spray your filthy lures with WD-40 and your life will be transformed. Hey, my hair is growing back. Whether you're a pro, a noob or a weekend warrior, WD-40 is for you. Remember, nothing cleans your supersonic shiner like WD-40. Call now and get a free fish nerds ball cap. But that's not all. We'll also send you half a tuna sandwich the crappy hippie left in his tackle bag for a week. But I'm still not done. Call right now and we'll double the offer. That's right, two cans of WD-40, two fish nerds caps, and two tuna sandwich halves. Wait, that's an entire tuna sandwich. That's right, an entire tuna sandwich. Call now to order. We're sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time. Well, that was that was hilarious. That is awesome, Tim. I love the Luramatic computer. All right, everybody, thank you all for tuning in to Lure Love tonight. This is John King, the crappie hippie, co-founder of Glasswater Angling, your tree-hugging redneck from eastern Kansas, with outdoor writer and fish nerds essayist, essayist Tim Beat saying, tight lines and valentines, peace out. Okay, well, that was really fun. Thank you, John King. And thank you so much, Tim Beat, as well. You know, talking about WD-40, I, I used to, as a kid, we used to fish out in CQ, Washington, out in uh, Washington State, and we'd be trolling for salmon. And I remember 
we woke up early one super duper early day and went out trolling for salmon, looking for, for uh, the king salmon, Chinooks, and they weren't biting. We heard on the radio that if you spray WD-40 on your lures, you will attract these fishes. And so we tried it, and after hours of not catching fish, we squirted this on our lures, and we immediately got our limit of, of Chinook salmon. Um, I think I was probably 12 or 13, maybe 14, when we did this. And my memory's pretty strong, but uh, memories are, are bananas anyway, so... You can't trust it, but that's what we used WD-40 of as as a kid. So I'm not recommending it. I don't know what it does to the environment, so don't do it. I didn't tell you it. It just didn't happen. Anyway, that is Lower Love, our really good segment there with, with the crappy hippie and with Tim Beat. Oh, yes. Time to sell you things here at the Fish Nerds Podcast. Support for the Fish Nerds is brought to you by Manscaped who is the best men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision engineering tools for your family jewels. Manscaped is trusted by over 2 million men worldwide. Join the movement for all your below-the-waist grooming needs. So there you go. Manscaped has uh, sent me their lawnmower <laughs> their lawnmower 3.0, and I, I did try it out in the shower, and it is waterproof. And it's got a uh, ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents, which is good news for me because I'm a clumsy guy. Uh, and I, I did. I trimmed up my hairs, uh, my family jewels. It also came with some nice cleaning equipment. Uh, it has a nice LED light, so you can just do a nice cl- close job of it. And I'm not going to tell you the outcome because uh, I'm still here and I am in one piece. But if you've been considering, uh, considering getting a trimmer, please consider getting Manscaped. Go to manscaped.com. Manscaped.com. You get 20% off and free shipping with the code FishNerds. Again, get 20% off and free shipping with the code FishNerds at Manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at Manscaped.com with the code FishNerds. Your balls, or your, excuse me, other person's balls, will thank you. Why, why do I do this? I don't know why I'm doing this. <laughs> All right, and we're super excited too because we have our very good friend Rich Collins, our our fly fishing correspondent, with us tonight, and he's got to introduce he's got an interview with Jeff from Brackish Flies, and they're going to talk all things brook trout. And this is a kind of a free form conversation, and you could join in with them and listen in, and go on our Facebook group and make some comments, to Rich, about what you think about it. And we're going to jump right in with that. And that'll be the whole show tonight. So when that's over, it's done. Next week on the podcast, uh, you're going to hear a discussion on the culture of ice fishing. That'll be a lot of fun. I got to be a, a um, member of a panel at the uh, Brattleboro Museum of Art in Brattleboro, Vermont, about uh, ice fishing. And I'm very excited about that. So you're going to hear that on next week's podcast. Let's jump right into this interview with Rich Collins and Jeff from Brackish Flies. Hey, fish nerds, this is Rich. I am here with my friend Jeff from Brackish Flies, and we are going to talk about brook trout, um, the good, the bad, and the ugly, or whatever we really feel like talking about. How are you doing, Jeff? Doing well, Rich. Thank you so much for having me on tonight. It's great to be back. It's been, uh, been a minute. Missed you guys. Yeah, oh, it's uh, been a while. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a rather crazy year, and uh, but I think I did get fish a lot, did you? I got out a good amount, you know? Uh, I don't think 
you know, there are certain people that, uh, you know, myself included, that might not have gotten out as much as we would have liked just because of all the silliness of the year. But I've, I've got high hopes for 2021. Yeah, it, it's going to be a good year. It's got to be a good year. <laughs> it's got to be better than the last year in any case. But I am wondering how the how the Brook Trout are doing. I want to talk about Brook Trout. I want to talk about Brookies. I want to talk about um, why they're fascinating. I don't know if it's because I'm an East Coast kid or what, but they're just the best fish. And that's what I want to talk about. Well, I'm all the more glad that you got me on for this because I, I think you know that they are they're my number one fish as well. There's just something about brook trout, the places we find them, their individual beauty, their feistiness and willingness to take a fly. Um, it's just, it's such a complete experience as offered by a fish and and the region that we're in you know like like you said i think a part of it is the fact that we're that we're northeast boys and and that we have such a love for for this part of the country and the nature and it's just you know i think about the places that i go to find these fish and how they remain untouched to some extent more than others of course um, or that there are functions of uh, large amounts of time and financial investment to to restore habitat and restore populations and narrow stream beds and plant uh, you know good woody structure and sure up the banks. You know, the list goes on and on and on. Um, but I think we're we're absolutely privileged. Um, to sort of a, a a whole other level than the rest of the country. And they, they are as, among us. They're in, you know, I don't know, one of the most productive spots in New Hampshire is in the middle of a city, I guess. For some reason, there's a ton of fish in one little, like, neighborhood in the city. Um, they're resilient little suckers, and it's amazing. That's unbelievable to, to think about. Um, and it's not just that they're in that place, but in, in New Hampshire in particular, I feel like you can almost uh, put a map up on the wall, chuck a dart. And if you hit a blue line, you can, you can go to it and stand a pretty good chance of finding trout. Now, whether the state happened to stock them over a potential wild population <laughs> there is uh, a different story. Right. Mm. That's, that's a horse of another color, isn't it? Um, <laughs> But that's, that's, you know, this is sort of a battle that New Hampshire, I think, is fighting much more so than Massachusetts as far as the stocking of uh, artificial fish yeah, um, the, over wild fish. The problem um, is our development is just starting. Um, that habitat is just, it's been semi-protected only because people haven't wanted to come here Um and it's all built out in mass, but it's not all built out here. So you see these farms and these like kind of really special places that are being sold for, you know, good, good money. And you'd be silly not to sell your farm to put in housing development. But I digress. But it is there's a threat here and it's a big one. <laughs> and someone's got to think, think about it long term and step up, which may or may not happen. 
Fingers crossed and we're knocked on for all of us on that one because there are <laughs> there are long term implications if uh if that doesn't work out. Um, so why do we why do we like brook trout? I mean you mentioned they live in the most beautiful places. I think that's probably one of the reasons I'm so intrigued because it's really hard to find nasty places where they live. I don't, I don't think they can see out of the water, but uh, they live in beautiful places, right. um, whether they know it or not. Whether it's off in the woods or, you know, in a mountain stream or, you know, there's, uh, in a pond. I mean, there are plenty of ponds all over Massachusetts and New Hampshire that actually have uh, native trout in them. Um it's a whole other challenge. And I mean, I think we've both seen people do like float tubing in, in ponds and do quite well. Um, personally, I, I'm, I'm all about the stream game, given a choice. There's something about a mountain stream or a stream going through the woods, the sound that it makes as it tumbles over the stones and through the wood structure and, and Every, every river, uh, there's, there's another uh, person, you know, a mutual friend of ours, who says that each river has a different voice. And I've really started to, to think about that in particular in the last season or two every time I go out. Interesting. Because I don't know about you, um, at least in, in 2020, just because of all the madness, um, there was always sort of a twinge that every time out could be the last time for a little while for one reason or another, whether, right. you yeah. know, you get sick or it, it, just that constant uncertainty. Um, and so I was just sort of trying to pay attention all the more to everything that was going on around me. And one of the things that I really noticed and started to gain an appreciation for was how all of these bodies of water have this different voice and how they're all saying something similar but different. It's like a fingerprint. They all have their own identity. It's right. totally unique, even though they're kind of the same. And, and I'm sure that this is true of other bodies of water in other parts of the world and country, but... I think, again, you know, in New England, we're particularly blessed that there's sort of another layer to it. And that I, I think you sort of know that this is coming as the historical angle. And the fact that these bodies of water were here at the birth of the country. And that's that's a pretty unbelievable thing. Um there's a friend of mine who studies um, genetics and genealogy in aquaculture. Um, and one time uh, or in the past year when we went out, he told me the story uh, and it's in, it's in this book. I think the author is, um, I don't remember his name, so I'm not even going to butcher it or trying to remember it. <laughs> but he the, the guy talks about uh, the fish of Uncas. Uncas was a Native American, correct term, I, I hope, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, it's Amer American Indian, American Indian, trying to be PC here. Mm -hmm. um, somebody please correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but uh, uh, a chief way back who 
in particular had a fondness for these fish, which turns out were brook trout. So there's there's a connection to the earliest days of our history in this land. And think about that however you will, particularly in regards to the people who were here first um, and their management of these fish and the waters that they live in. Um, but thinking about when I, when I'm out and on these streams, how, you know, they say nobody steps in the same, the same river twice because the river is constantly changing as you are constantly changing. Mm-hmm. But there is history in particular I think to these bodies of water and the fish that call them home um you know there's um there was someone that I talked to years back who you know said they worked at Department of Fisheries and Wildlife and when they were working at Department of Fisheries and Wildlife there was another old fart who worked there who had been in the business for a while and um, knew about the fisheries and history and all that jazz. And he said that in theory, or he, I'm sure was much more sure of it. I'm still calling it a theory. There is even a particular strain, genetic strain of brook trout called Indian trout that goes all the way back to pre-colonial times and pre, you know, early stocking efforts, because Mm -hmm. even though a lot of the fish that we catch now are wild and the, the Northeast brook trout is within its native range here in New England. Right. Right. They were still stocked in some of these bodies of water you know, move from one body to another to expand the population. Mm -hmm. But some are still where they were, where they have been, hopefully would knocked on where they always will be. Um, at least until I'm gone. What, what happens to them after I'm gone? Eh. (laughs) (laughs) Forget about the next generation. (laughs) I would, you know, I, yeah, we have to worry about this year. <laughs> it's right. like I, I, I do. We both do conservation work, and it's like the long game is decades in conservation work. The short game is years, and it's like this taught us that years are. I mean, they're fluid. They're barely. <laughs> it's crazy. This past week has felt like a year. Oh, Thank I you know. very much. I know it, and yet we have these. I mean, I don't know how many years. I don't know when trout first started to appear, but they've been here longer than we have, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, Last ice age. It's crazy. Because they are they are char. I mean, we call them trout, but they are char. Um, I think brook char just doesn't roll off the tongue quite <laughs> easily. Char. Um, brook char. I mean, exactly, with the New England accent, it totally does. Brook char. Brook char, guy. <laughs> See, that's what we got to do. We got to start... Um, you know, making it slang yeah, and colloquial. It, yeah. Put it. Um, <laughs> but but what we're oh, doing sorry. to the poor things is we're we're taking away their 
I don't know what their routine, you know, they would travel, they would go upstream when it got hot to find cold water. They would go downstream into the big rivers um, when in summer to find food, they, they traveled, they moved, they did these crazy things. And I know there's, there's one system left in Maine in New Hampshire where they still are allowed to move for many miles. Um, the biologists have talked about it, but I think there's literally one stream left that's unobstructed that allow these brook trout to do what brook trout do. And that's terrifying. I mean, they're all over. There's wild fish everywhere, but there's only in this state one system left that's free for them to do the stuff they do. So while they might be genetically, you know, the same, their habitat has been just uh, chopped up by my people. So they'll, they'll survive. I don't, I'm not so worried about that, but imagine their character has to change, right? A hundred percent. And you got to think, and you're starting to see it now that dam removal and restoring uh, native and uh, diadromous fish passage is it's catching on. Um, You know, more dams are coming out more people are realizing that yeah we've we've made a mistake a pretty egregious mistake and yeah these dams are historic but it's much more important for the ecosystem that these fish be able to move how they're actually supposed to move um and you know we we certainly have a long way to go there's a lot of um discussion and fundraising and effort to be put forth um, but at the same time, I think that now in 2021, we are miles ahead of where we were when I started fly fishing in 2014, 2015. Good, good to think about. Yeah. I always think we're behind, but that's just cause I'm a pessimist. <laughs> but <laughs> you're also see. not wrong for thinking that way. I mean, we've seen a lot of really twisted things that are causing us to make steps backward but there's also i mean in conservation like you said where everything is on such a long time span or time frame rather excuse me um you gotta find the the positives when you can because otherwise you get real freaking depressed (laughs) (laughs) yes indeed and the fact Um, that there are many wild trout out there they just don't get real big and the reason they don't get big is because they're confined to their little neighborhoods now, which is a small stretch of river or a pond or whatever. They don't have anywhere to go to feed to kind of grow up and be, you know, big. They'll eat anything. <laughs> um, they're voracious little buggers. But if there's not food, like in the White Mountains here, there's not the, the streams are pretty sterile. They don't have a lot to eat. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're tough they survive but they don't get big and then we have to put the big fish that we grow in the hatchery on top of them for the sportsmen and it's, it's a crazy situation but it is what it is i just wish for it our benefit right <laughs> yep and i i don't shun some stocking in certain situations but in uh in some i do <laughs> and that's that's something that i've also had to come to terms with that, you know, for a long time, I'm sure you probably even heard me say, stop stalking, period. I just, I was not a fan, but I certainly, I've, I've come to gain an appreciation or at least something of an understanding for why it is necessary in some cases. 
but we also need to, I feel like as a whole, be doing a greater diligence on the part of, you know, those stalking efforts to ensure that we aren't negatively impacting the habitat that is already there. Yeah. What little is left. Yeah. yeah. Right. And it, 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 it's easy to blame stocking, but as we build, you know, developments on top of every single wild stream and then call the development, whatever it is, pickerel stream, you know, housing, whatever for rich people, it's, it's not all stocking, but it's, all humans, <laughs> I guess, is the name of the game. Um, yep. And then guys like us go out and we, you know, we don't benefit the fish by poking them in the mouth with a fly, but we appreciate the fish. So are we are we part of the problem or part of the solution? Who knows? And then, you know, to take it even the next step further, God forbid we post pictures of our fish on the internet. <laughs> And someone should see them and be able to somehow discern from the background mm. where we might be and then take conceivably hours of their own time to investigate <laughs> on Google Earth and say, I know where you were fishing now. <laughs> it's a whole different animal. Look, the, the spot if, burn. If you want to go through my feed and try and figure out all the spots that I'm posting because I don't tag locations. I try and be mindful of what's in the background of my shots so that I'm not being, you know, too obvious. Exactly. And I don't use, you know, certain hashtags that would telegraph what I'm doing all the more clearly. Um, but still people know me, people know where I like to fish. And some people just guess. And if they guess and they're right, I'm not going to lie to them, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, there's a difference between introducing people to native populations that have been untouched and there's the places everybody goes constantly. So that you can find with the most cursory of Google search, <laughs> should you put forth the modicum of effort required okay. in order to make said Google search. <laughs> well, that's what's interesting about wild fish is they're not big enough generally to, you know, I mean, you get some trophies, 12, 15 inch wild They're, I mean, they're trophies, but people are like, Oh, look over here under this dam. There's a, you know, 22 inch stocky. Why would I go after yours? So there there's, I don't know. Eh. <laughs> eh. I think we both know why we, you and I would choose that 12 to 15 inch brook trout versus a stocked fish. Um, there's something about, I mean, we've both seen our fair share of the four, five, six inch clasps. And those fish are gorgeous. There's no question yeah, about it. And they're, they're insane. They're, they fight, they're, they attack like, nothing i've ever seen <laughs> when they're the amount prime. of force that a, a five to eight inch fish will put into destroying your streamer or whatever it is that you happen to be throwing is staggering to me it is yeah it really is they're just like you said earlier they are voracious predators 
they are opportunistic feeders for the most part. I've short of the Swift, which sort of, you know, I know that we're trying not to name systems here, but everyone and their mother knows the Swift. <laughs> which I don't know much about. I haven't fished it. So even the brook trout there are far more selective than any other fishdom, excuse me, system that I fish for brook trout. Hmm. It's interesting. Is it the competition? Is it the genetics? They're stuck. The clear, right? slow water. No, they are wild. The brook oh, trout are? are wild in the swift. Oh, oh. They stock the rainbows, um, though some, you know, on rare occasion, you will find a hatchery escapee, mm -hmm. and those yeah. are really cool. Um, <laughs> those look like some some rainbows that I've seen up in parts of New Hampshire and Western Massachusetts, um, that there are wild reproducing rainbows. Um, and they... Uh, they, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Invents a similar, uh, situation to a brook trout where they don't really grow that big, but they are, they're so much prettier and fight so much harder for mm. their size. Mm -hmm. And that's, oops, sorry. Yeah. The only, the only fish I can compare, I, I went out West for a month this last year, I'm going to go out for a couple months. This year is the cutthroat. The cutthroats are kind of the same um, in their behavior. They're like huge stocked fish. I didn't realize half of Wyoming is stocked, and there's a lot of stocked fish, and people pretend they're not. But they're big, but they're not very exciting. They're just big. <laughs> but those cutthroats, those natives that are still right around them, are kind of like our brookies they're 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 insane they are um competing for their food and they're gonna get it and, and i love it that's amazing no i i dream of the day that i get to to fish more of the country um i mean part of me has the pipe dream idea of my brother's wedding next october that i do a cross-country drive and fish along the way um I've got friends in various places from um, Ohio, Illinois, um, Wyoming, Oregon, parts in between that there's there's plenty of water that I've just never seen parts of the country I've never seen. Excuse me. And it's, it's of interest. I mean, particularly now when you're when you're telling me about. Mm. searching for the cutthroat because they don't have rather the brook trout that they have out on the west coast are soft um which my only experience with west coast fishing at this point was we had three days uh, in yosemite a few years ago for my birthday mm. um and we stayed in uh, an area of yosemite called lower pines you're right on the merced river um, and you know, the first day we arrive, I'm standing there on the shore, refilling my water bottle. Cause I brought a filterator thing. Um, and I'm seeing fish rise. So of course I proceed to spend like six hours just throwing everything in my fly box <laughs> that I could think of at these fish. But of course they're right next to the road. So they weren't touching a gosh darn thing. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure they were, uh, rainbows and browns. Um, nothing really big, 
but still would have been a thrill to catch right there, right. you know, in the shadow of, of El Cap and Half Dome. Um, but a few days later, we drove from an altitude of around 3,000 feet at the campground out of the park, up and around into Tuomni Meadows, up to 10,000 feet starting altitude, and then hiked another 1,000 feet to some high altitude ponds where as we were arriving, it was starting to snow and blow. But I had just hiked a thousand feet in my waders and boots and with my fly gear. So I was going to take some freaking casts. I tell you that. (laughs) And after a few casts, I got a beautiful, I mean, what I thought was a beautiful brook trout out of this high altitude pond. I mean, the colors were just absolutely lit up. The fins were in perfect condition. And getting this fish in the snowstorm at the top of a mountain in California was pretty wild. Yeah. On a fly I tied. That's good stuff. And you tie, yeah, you tie your own flies, so. Doesn't hurt. Um, (laughs) But back on this coast, like... I've caught so many small fish. I mean, I, I, I posted a picture just the other day that you may have seen. This fish was maybe six inches, you know, six, seven inches. But its cheek plate was just, you know, as I, I cupped my hand underneath it to support it because, you know, for whatever reason with my vision, when the fish is in my hand, I can see it much more clearly. The colors pop more than when it's just in the net. Mm-hmm. I'm still holding it underwater so it can breathe, hmm. but I can just sort of turn its flank towards me so I can get my quick picture. It's still fully wet and breathing the whole time. It's submerged. Um, but I just kept seeing its cheek flash specifically in colors like pearl flashaboo. I saw these colors, like this purple, mm. this green, this blue. Interesting. And it, was, it was amazing. I was just hypnotized by it. I tried to get a picture, but it was, it was tough. Yeah. Was, the know, the right. And, you know, it, it was more just about, I got my couple of quick shots, got the fish back, end the story but um, yet i i heard you i can't remember when talking about those brook trout in the cape cod canal blending into the uh the rocks i remember like they just sit there and hide so they're beautiful and flashy but yet they can i don't know if they adapt their color or just oh, absolutely i mean remember they when they go out to the salt and when they come back they can change the the dominant colors you know, whether they look more like a resident fish with more of the greens and blacks, bright yellow spots, um, bright blue halos with red spots versus chrome in 12 hours. And that would be interesting for a biologist. How do they know, do they, does their eye see the color and their body follows or does, how does it know? <laughs> Salt content, I would imagine. plays. Oh, you think factor. it's more of a, you think it's more of an environmental cue? That would be my guess. Oh, which would um, be uh, evolution-based, like when they feel the salt. Mm-hmm. 
when they spend a predominant amount of time in the salt, just because of like the nutrients that are available and what they eat or the water that they're swimming in and breathing, mm. I think, you know, that plays a function in their color as much as, I mean, it might very well be that, you know, they see or that they sense that they're, they're in a place where those, that dark color palette of the gravel on the bottom doesn't need to be matched and they need to be more invisible. Cause think about bait fish in the ocean. What, what are they most of the time? They're silver. They're just a cloud of silver and you hope you're in the middle of the cloud. <laughs> when exactly. The, when the big fish come a chomping, they don't have the. So I haven't, I haven't really seen it for years unfortunately but when i first started fishing in those systems um i would i was really finding consistently those chrome fish and they were i mean they were silver the the blue haloed red spots were gone the vermiculation on the back was gone you could just barely see the faintest remnants of the yellow spots. Interesting. So, and the fins, the fins were like, you know how they're normally bright orange? Mm -hmm. They were like a pale yellow. With white tips. Interesting. Yep. So we should probably explain to people listening about the native brook trout had access to the ocean. Um, you can call them sea run brook trout. You can call them salters is what they call them here. But they would go out from the rivers, inland rivers. They would follow a path out to the ocean and go out and chow on whatever they could find. Minnows. I don't know what they would eat, but they, they had access Grass, to these shrimp. systems. Shrimp, yeah. Everybody's favorite. Mm -hmm. So in, an, in a real uncut um, environment, the brook trout travel really far and they go to the ocean and they change and then they come back and that's not quite gone, but it's almost gone, but it's hopefully going to survive. Um, but yeah, they just know. And then, like you said, if it's when they feel the salt or chemical composition, they know to change color to chrome because they are, they, they turn into little footballs, like chrome little footballs when they go out to the sea. Um, but you don't see it much and people don't think about it because well, we don't have much of it left, um, but they're really special fish. And, you know, I keep talking to more and more people as the years go on, the longer I spend actually fishing that, you know, there are more sea run systems out there. They just aren't publicized the way that the, the big three down the Cape are, um, Again, you know, anyone with an internet connection can find those three systems. Mm -hmm. But there's stuff conceivably down in Connecticut, um, in New Hampshire even, up in Maine. I mean, I've heard the talk. I haven't seen it myself. Mm -hmm. But there's in Canada. That, I think Canada. Oh, has absolutely real... in Canada. But I, you know, for for all intents and purposes, I was I was keeping it to the. To the, the crazy U.S. of A. Um, uh, no, absolutely. Canada probably has more salter streams still than than the entire continental USA. Um, 
and I bet the fish, or I know that the fish they get up there are bigger than what we get down here. I've been talking to someone in, I'm trying to remember where he is. Um, he's not PEI. He's not New Brunswick. He's, he's somewhere up there. He's in one of those islands. And this year, I think he got an 18 sea run, an 18 inch sea run on the fly. Hmm. In the salt or in the yeah, in the salt, in the salt. like <laughs> it was chrome. Wow, this thing was just a monster, and that is honestly the only thing that has me trying to get my passport status <laughs> or get my passport back because I let it lapse like a doofus. Um, but that is that is really all I want it for. I want to go to there, and I want to catch those fish. Please and thank you. <laughs> but it's the same. I don't think they're brook trout down in um, Patagonia, right? They're rainbow, but they're sea run rainbow. Are they, are they browns? I can't remember. But there's I a think sea in run Patagonia, with... there are browns. There's a sea run I... component, but we have it here, but barely. Barely. Right. <laughs> um I know that our state has tried for years to restore a population of of, of uh, sea run, and they failed miserably. I mean, they're putting the same genetic code fish, and now they just dump 2,500 brown trout, and people fish for them, and they call them salters, but they're not. Some do go out. They're being caught out in the bay, out in the ocean, but they're not they're not really performing. They're just going out there and hiding. They hide under boats and they hide under docks. And they're not sea run. They're just <laughs> poor consumer stockies that, that went out and they can go to the salt, but they don't know how to do the things that the brook trout seem to know how to do. Follow the patterns or follow the, the food, I guess. So right. it's pretty crazy. But yeah, I would I would like to go somewhere and see it in action. I know that mid coast Maine might have some living populations. The Cape might have some living populations, but it's it's getting pretty rare to find. To put it politely, and now <laughs> with everyone and their mother out fishing and banging all these systems all the time, it's just it's all the more imperative that stuff be done to protect, conserve, preserve, make people aware of how special these fish are. It's just, it's kind of scary to me. Um, just how many people I see out and about. Yeah. COVID COVID's um, not been a friend of, well, anything, <laughs> but uh, I know we talked Jeff, um, Jeff from the Sea Sea Run Brook Trout Coalition once said, "You know, if you can't name the system, you can't save it," which might be true. Exactly. But or we, that you, can, or <laughs> that you arguably shouldn't even be fishing it in the first place. Yeah, that's my second thing. But all right, we name them, but now people get interested, and in when there's a pandemic, people are just looking for stuff outside, and they hammer. And I can't blame them. I'm, I I would do the same thing. But it's like, okay, when when do we when do we save them? When do we go from conservation to preservation? And do we do that? Is it worth it? I don't I don't know. So I mean, like like I said, or like I, I mentioned earlier when it was just us talking, um, I was I'm in theory working on trying to get certified to be able to 
install PIT tags. For those who aren't familiar, PIT, P-I-T, stands for Passive Integrated Transponder. And believe it or not, it's actually the same system. If you have a dog or a cat who is microchipped, it is the same thing. Um, with that same size tag, you know, it's something about the size of a grain of rice. Um, on certain systems, we are able to track fish, i.e. there are static antennas on the system that when a fish with a tag passes through it, their tag number is then relayed through the antenna to a computer that logs it and says, you know, fish number XYZ passed through this antenna at this date at this time. And then we can, you know, sort of look at our own data, look at weather patterns, look at uh, tides, etc., and see how that all comes together. But then from an, uh, taking it one step further, me as an angler, I have access to a pit tag reading wand that was loaned to me by the Sea Run Brook Trout Coalition, who I volunteer with. And when I am out fishing down there, I am also gathering data on mm. fish. I'm scanning to see if they have a tag. If they do or if they don't, I try to get a length measurement on them in millimeters, which is more precise. We get pictures of them of any discerning feature. And then we let them go. Just a quick little interaction. But the aim is in the future that I will be able to uh, apply the tags to the fish that don't have them. Because that's that's data that we're not getting. Mm -hmm. What um, this? Oh, sorry. Oh, what, sort of, what what percentage of the fish do you think are that you're finding are tagged? Like ten percent or fifty, or are they the same fish? Uh, or? Personally, that the the percentage of fish that I am catching that are tagged versus not tagged fish represent maybe like a quarter hmm. of the fish that I catch. So, yeah, which there's certainly a lot of tags out there, but there's also plenty of fish who aren't tagged at all. Right, and plenty of striper chowing down on the tagged fish to take them out of the population. Exactly. It's not just anglers. Right. You know, th there's absolutely natural factors, and it's not just the striper. There's heron, there's osprey, there's um, there's otter. seal, th mm -hmm. there's otter. The, the list goes on. There's so many factors. There's the drought, there's pollution, um, and uh, um, what's the word? Um eutrophication that happens to streams where there's just too many nutrients and algae takes over. Um, it, it's, there's so many factors that work against these fish and that they are somehow still here today. Um, speaks a little bit to their resilience, but also speaks to the incredible work that's been done, particularly over the last few years. Right. Yeah. There's some, there's some people, my foray into conservation work is, I just, it's really hard for me because you have to set your goals in decades, not hours. And I just don't have the brain for it because um, I can't see the results. I get discouraged, blah, blah, blah. Absolutely. But luckily there's some people that know the long game and um, 
figure it out. So I like doing field work and I like fixing things or building things or taking samples. But when it comes to the politics and the long game, I'm, I'm not the one. <laughs> Took me a while to figure that out, but I'm like, it's not me. Politics is not an easy game to play. And there's a lot of duality in it. Um, you know, that's, it's definitely not where I shine either. I still try and go to, to my TU meetings, my, uh, my local chapter TU meetings, make my voice heard, or at least pay attention to what's going on. So I'm aware of what's happening. Um, I know like tomorrow I'm going out with, uh, with Jeff day, actually, we're going to take the, the chapters drone up and we're going to do a survey on a system. Um, this is sort of like the golden time while all the, uh, the trees are down and you can see through all the branches and get a clearer idea from above of what's actually happening in the system. Um, so we're going to try and do that. Um, but something that I've been trying to do this winter is I've been trying to scout and find other systems that I can take my clients to um, during this season. Um, ah, so there's so the, double, we, the double-edged sword is you also target these poor little wonderful critters for profit. Exactly. But at the same time, you know, as much as I am profiting off them being there, I try and make, you know, as many donations as I can to groups that are doing the righteous work and make sure that focus is brought to organizations that are doing better work than I, um, to ensure that these fish are, are still here. Right. And I think but when I, you, when you introduce people to them and, and teach them that they're special, it's a lot different than, Oh, I went to this dumb stream and caught these little dumb fish and uh, whatever. And that's sort of my hope too, is to, is to bring focus to these fish and how beautiful and special that they are in the hopes of, you know, making people aware that, yeah, these, these are fantastic fish and we should care about them and protect them and maybe pay a little bit more attention to the health of our waterways because brook trout are a fantastic barometer of the health of a waterway. If, if there's brook trout in the water, chances are it's, it's fairly clean. If there's no trout, then you probably have, have an issue. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's, that's sort of my thought on on that. Hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a great topic, but well, we sure have uh, touched on some issues here. Covered <laughs> we were, the full gamut. We were going to bloviate about how great brook trout are, but it it always ends up in a complex discussion. Just does can't can't stop it. And I think um, that's that's both a good and a bad thing, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm certainly one who has talked about the importance of just having fishing be fishing, just appreciate. And that's, you know, I think that's where we started, you know, just the beauty of nature and these incredible places where these fish exist. But then you start to think on that a little more and you start to see more as you yourself spend time out in the field and Unfortunately, I mean, I think we're, we're all aware that there are a lot of issues at hand that require more hands, more eyes, more attention. And, you know, it isn't a bad thing 
that that we're talking about these problems. It's just like bringing someone out to the stream and actually showing them the fish and the places where they exist. It's it's important work. And what are your top five brookie flies? My top five brookie flies, I mean, uh, I know you know this, but I don't know if everyone listening knows this. Um, I'm an all-streamers guy when it comes to brook trout. Um, oh, I, I don't know if I knew that. You don't use dries at all? When it comes to brook trout, particularly in New England and the way that I like to fish, huh. 100% of the time, I am using a streamer. Oh, I thought when, well, whenever we fished, it was just not dry fly season, but I didn't know that. Oh, interesting. So, um, I mean, like, believe it or not, one of the few times that I use a dry fly during the year is when I come up to the White Mountains at the end of the summer um, and go to the lakes and fish up, you know, mm -hmm. up in northern and central New Hampshire. There are there are streams that are a bit more open overhead that really allow me to do the casting that I like to do, fishing a hopper dropper or a dry dropper rig that I haven't really found or found as much enjoyment fishing down here in Massachusetts huh. as the tight quarters stuff that I really like doing for brook trout. So top five flies, rather top five streamers, if I had to only have five, I mean, first one is the deadly empty shiner, which I tie a variant on. I shorter tail, weight the shank, different colors, yada, yada, yada. That fly catches every fish that swims, um, but I tie that mostly in a size 12 and a size 10. Um, so does that count as two or is that just one? That's one. <laughs> so uh, the Shiner, um, the Light and the Dark Edson Tiger, both must-haves. Again, um, I actually have taken to almost always tying that in size 10 because I get the, the Edson cheeks and those just don't really work on, on the smaller hooks. Um, but I tie them on like six and seven times long shanks. Um, and that's a killer fly or those are both killer flies. So that's three, um, shiner tigers. Um, Oh, the, the one eyed poacher can't be without the one eyed poacher. That's like a, a trout flat wing uh, kind of sort of fly. Again, on a long shank hook, but the wing, you know, going up from the shank, you've got um, at least the original recipe is a little bit of yellow bucktail, a little bit of red bucktail, yellow marabou, and then a mallard or a, a wood duck flank feather tied on top of that uh, flat. So that from underneath, it has a wider profile hmm. and so many fish, the big fish hang down low. The bait fish is up here as it comes over, cast that bigger silhouette. Big fish says, Oh, this is a bigger meal. I'm going to eat it. So that's four one eyed poacher. And then five, <laughs> number five, it has to be a brook trout fly, right? I could be any fly, but hmm. a striper fly won't do. <laughs> no, be something no, you'd I, use. in a stream. Um, four is okay. Uh, the the shiner is weighted. 
the Tigers and the Poacher both have the, the Edson cheek, so they can't down a little bit, but they aren't really weighted. I'm going to do another weighted fly, and I'm going to say the Slump Buster. Oh, the Slump Buster, yeah. I'm because, I mean, if you're in a slump. Yeah, nothing with a, with a little tail, a little squirrel, squirrel tail, right? Slump Buster squirrel. Squirrel tail, flash. Conehead. Conehead. As something about those pine squirrel strips. Mm-hmm. Just wreck. It's got so much motion in it. That one material, it's incredible. <laughs> so it's such a simple and such a simple and deadly fly. Well, Elkhair Caddis, depending on size matters, but Elkhair Caddis always. Um, I use a, a sculpin snack, which isn't much different than a uh, slump buster conehead, but it's got legs and it's got UV flash. Um, drives them crazy. A Duracell, which is a jig head nymph with purple UV flash. And the um, CDC. Can't forget yeah. the CDC in yeah. there. And they, um, well, I don't know what to call it, but a caddis emerger. My, my buddy Tom, who's a guide, makes his own, and he got me settled on it. He calls it, I don't remember, Tom's CDC <laughs> emerger, but he put some frog's fanny on it and, it and let it lay in the surface, and it's unbeatable. And then um, a Chernobyl ant, I don't know what the hell they think it is. It's taken me a long time to figure it out, but... Um, they love that, and I don't. I don't think they think it's a grasshopper, which is what kind of. It's definitely not an ant. I don't know what they think it is, but they love lunch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, meat, meat fly. Exactly. So I'm I'm gonna add a plus one for the Chernobyl, the chubby Chernobyl. Oh, the that chubby fly. Chernobyl. Yeah. So I mean that that thing is just. I love that fly. That is a great terrestrial. Um, I've caught some really nice fish on that fly in particular. I mean, one of my favorite moves up in New Hampshire, you throw that fly, the chubby Chernobyl right at the edge of a rock that is sitting in some white water. Browns like to sit right there. Oh yeah. (laughs) It's either they take it or they don't. Right. I mean, the second that thing hits the water, it is bananas. I think that's what yeah that's what does it like it's so fast and it's so intense and they fly through the air after it and the little guys can't put it in their mouth most of the time which is even better you don't actually catch them you just watch them attack smack and, the thing <laughs> smack it multiple times it's a exactly great and then you can drop a trailer off it and a little nymph or whatever but just watch them hammer those is hopper dropper baby <laughs> Well, great. Can't go wrong. Well, let's uh, let's stop talking um, about our favorites for a bit and let people have a break. And I appreciate you talking to me and the fish nerds. Um, put in a little plug for yourself. You do flies, custom flies. You do custom rods. You do uh, trips. Your guide. You do all these things. Um, just tell us a little bit about what you're what you're planning 2021 with all the chaos, and we'll uh, we'll call it a day. So yeah, like like you said, I I guide for brook trout, uh, carp, and striped bass, all on the fly, all catch and release. I build custom rods, fly rod, spin rod, casting rod. Um, I work out of a shop here in Massachusetts, Cody's, uh, down in, in Leicester, C-O-T-E. Um, uh, and guide trip flies 
rod. Uh, that's 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 the deal. And then twenty twenty one, just uh, you know, books are open. Book your trip as soon as possible, so that way we can make sure we get you out during the prime time. Um, and you know, we'll uh, it'll be a pleasure to have you out on the water and uh, and show you these spectacular fish. Awesome. Thanks, Jeff Klein. Good talking to you, and uh, we'll do this again soon. Thank you, Rich. All a right, pleasure. Thanks, boys. Take Very care. informative. I learned a lot about Brook Trout tonight. Hope you, uh, hope you enjoyed yourselves, and thank you, everyone, for listening to the Fish Nerds Podcast. That's it. Special thanks to our families for supporting us while we podcast and do nerdy things. Big fat thanks to Rich Collins and Jeff from Brackish Flies. Big thank you to the crappie hippie, John King, and also to Tim Beat and Tim Beat's daughter uh, for that music, Grace, who sang the Lower Love theme. I also want to make sure we thank Wally Pleasant for our theme for the Fish Nerds podcast. So until next time, follow the code of the Fish Nerds, spawn early and often. Never trust a free lunch with strings attached and swim against the current every chance you get. Fish Nerds, out of here. Hey guys, look at that adorable town. There's the classic New England church, the quaint village store, all surrounding that beautiful pond. The sparkling snow-frosted pines, oh look, they're ice skating and all those folks ice fishing. This is God's country. Let's go ice fishing this weekend, please, Dad. Yeah, let's try something new. We already have all of our warm stuff for skiing. Plus, the kid is actually making plans to put down her tablet for a change. It's certainly something different, and it sounds really fun. But how? Hey, I know a few guys. Have you ever thought about hitting the hard water but don't know where to start? I'm Clay, licensed fishing guide, and my partner Vinny and I can get you on and off the ice safely. All you need is warm clothes and a fishing license, and the Fish Nerds Guide Service will do the rest. Go to fishnerds.com for pricing and information. Whether you're fly fishing in a stream, getting those ankles wet, or deep in the ocean casting nets, Fish Nerds. Fish Nerds. Fish Nerds. It's a podcast. Just for the halibut. Fried in a basket or broiled in a pan. Eat it raw like you're in Siam. Fish Nerds. Fish Nerds. Fish Nerds. It's a podcast.